Live from this is the Just End the Suffering Podcast. For the win. Got it! Oh! He broke his ankle! Follow me! Follow me to freedom! Here's your host, Mike Phillips. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of the Just End the Suffering Podcast, featuring New York sports talk and long-suffering fan. I'm your host, Mike Phillips. I got a good show for you this week. We already did our baseball opening day special here with Will Schneiderhan and it's early the baseball beat. That episode is out already, but we're going to catch you up on the college basketball craziness. The final four is set. We have our matchups. Gonzaga taking on UCLA in one side of the bracket. Baylor-Houston, the all-Texas matchup on the other side. And you joined just a minute by Troy Moriello of the C Red Podcast. We'll be doing all March long. We're going to catch you up on that, plus some of the big coaching news in college basketball. A lot of movement on the coaching carousel. We'll break all that down in just a bit. We're also going to be joined for Pop Culture this week by Alan Austin. We're going to talk about the documentary from HBO Sports, The Day Sports Stood Still, produced by Chris Paul, EP, and directed by Antoine Fuqua. Realistic documentary. We're going to talk about that at the end of the show. But we'll get it all started with the opening tip. We're giving you a little bit of a catch-all, some of the baseball things going on right now as we approach opening day right after this. Three, two, one. Y'all ready for this? The opening tip. And here we go. All right, opening tip time here. A little bit, some couple of baseball catch-alls here, some developments in the last podcast. Number one, obviously, the big news if you're a Met fan is the Francisco Lindor contract is done. It looks like it's going to be a sweat there because we had the standoff for a little bit. Uh, the Mets offered 10 for 325. He didn't want to budge off a of 12, 385. We had that sample. like a chance he might not get the deal done. But at the end, a little bit of compromise at the end, 10 years, $341 million, no opt-outs. Lindor is a Met for the long term. Good job by the Mets and Lindor get this done because, honestly, there's no reason not to. Lindor was taking a huge risk turning down that much money because you look at the star class of shortstops next offseason. If he was going to go in the market, he would have been going in the market with Corey Seager, Carlos Correa, Javier Baez, Trevor Story. Those four shortstops with him would have given teams options to pursue shortstops. Whereas if Francisco Lindor wanted over $300 million, why would a lot of teams pay that? And they say, you know, we can get Trevor Story for $150. we are not going to pay twice as much to get a, be- a better player. A lot of teams operate that way. The Mets, I would say, the motivation to get this done because they traded four players to get him and three years of Carlos Carrasco. Having this not done would have been a disaster on the Mets' end. At the end, good compromise here. Lindor clearly wanted to be the Tatis contract, which he does. The Mets don't budge off the 10 years. They get the deferred money in there to sort of offset the fact that he's getting more than he asked for. It's a perfect deal for everybody because it's a franchise-changing move for the Mets. The Mets are a team that, for a long time, has not been in this big market. The biggest contract they've given out had been the day right there was $130.5 million. This is more than double that. This is a sign to the Mets' future saying, hey, we want big players. We'll get big players. And this is something that 
sets the tone for the franchise because now you have a generational shortstop who could be a top five player in the game around for the next 10 years, 11 years counting this season. It's a huge win for the Mets. Huge loss to the Mets, however, the fact that their opening day game is been postponed. COVID issues with the Nationals. We heard about that they had a positive test on the flight from Florida, D.C. Contact tracing knocked out four players. Rob Manfred today announces that opening night is in postponed. They can't play Friday either because there is more contact tracing to be done for Washington. We've heard rumors that another player tested positive. This is just, you know, so frustrating with Major League Baseball right now because we had this whole setup of you're going to wear your Connexon devices. You're going to find out who is not available, and you're going to play without them. Unless it's an active outbreak, and we don't know this yet. And I get that they're now, with the more positive test, they got a contact trace, which is why they can't play tomorrow. But if you're the Mets, you don't get to play at least Saturday, you're going to be very, very disappointed because this is a scenario where you have a full 162-game season. You're losing a three-game series off the bat. That means you have to make up three games in Washington, and they're going to insist probably that they're going to be in Washington because you have to accommodate the fans. You're going to make the Mets make extra trips down there, play three double headers in Washington. It's just, it's just not good look by Major League Baseball. I know MLB's probably sitting there thinking to themselves, we wanted to play in May. They didn't want to do it. It's their fault. MLB, why do we have a taxi squad? Why do we have the alternate site if we're not going to tap into it? Once you are clear that we have done our contact tracing and we've removed the players we need to remove, they're actually playing on Saturday. It's that simple. This is one of the cases where, you know what, that's the rules you agreed to play with. Sorry. You, you play with who you play with. Here we go. The NFL made the Broncos play without all their quarterbacks in the game. The NBA has made the teams in Philadelphia play with eight players. Five of, none of whom were in the rotation. That's the breaks right now playing in this in this situation. You need to, at this point, not coddle the Nationals if once you determine it's contact tracing. You can't, once you get through that, figure out who's available, play the game. Play on Saturday. Obviously, you don't want to make them play a doubleheader right now if they're shorthanded. So try and play the two scheduled games. Throw a, throw a doubleheader in there somewhere on the next, next two trips to Washington. Get it done. It's not fair to the Mets also. They're going to sit in Washington for a weekend, potentially not play before going to Philly. Completely also screws up the momentum of their season. That's issue number two. We also have a longer term issue for the league because they're going to get caught up in the political situation here going on down in Georgia with the voting rights bill, which if you look at the bill closely, it's pretty clear what it is. It's an attempt to basically disenfranchise black voters. And we're not going to get into the politics all that, but MLB is in the mess because their all-star game this year is scheduled for Atlanta. The PGA Tour has also gotten heat for the Masters being scheduled for Augusta next week, but the PGA Tour has nothing to do with that. That is an independent event run by the Masters. The players happen to play for rankings points. The Tour itself has nothing to do with it. This is Augusta. I don't think Augusta is going to move it. I don't think they are motivated to do it because this is their revenue thing. The issue with baseball here is that they have alternatives to play this game. Tony Clark for the PA has said, we are going to talk about moving this game because we had a whole thing last year about Black Lives Matter. We're going to try and encourage voting, all those things. Playing the game in Atlanta would be 
probably very hypocritical to that effort. Here and this is also a topic that is making reaching the political mainstream as well because Sports Center Sage Steele did an interview with President Joe Biden last night prior to opening day. She has out this topic, and here's what he had to say. So, Mr. President, what do you think about the possibility that baseball decides to move their all-star game out of Atlanta because of this political issue? I think today's professional athletes are acting incredibly responsibly. I would strongly support them doing that. People look to them. They're leaders. Look at what's happened with the NBA as well. Look at what's happened across the board. The very people who are victimized the most are the people who are the leaders in these, in these various sports. And it's just not right. This is Jim Crow on steroids, what they're doing in, in Georgia and 40 other states. What it's all about. Imagine passing a law saying you cannot provide water or food for someone standing in the line to vote? Can't do that? Come on. Or you're going to close a polling place at 5 o'clock when working people just get off? This is all about keeping working folks and ordinary folks that I grew up with from being able to vote. I mean, it's pretty clear. This is going to be a big story nationwide with all the efforts about the vote. We're not going to talk about the politics here. Talk about the sports business here because... This is something where there's going to be a lot of pressure from the players on the league to say, hey, don't give Atlanta this economic opportunity when they're trying to disenfranchise black voters. And there is going to be pressure here. I think there's a very strong chance this game gets moved out of Atlanta. Because don't forget, this is not the first time a league has moved in a sporting event due to protest a poor legal choice, a poor law, for example. Back in 2017, the NBA pulled its all-star game out of Charlotte. Over, over laws that were discriminatory against against the uh, homosexual community, against the gay community. That movement was one example. The NFL has done it too back in 1993. They pulled a Super Bowl from Arizona after voters refused to make Martin Luther King Day a national holiday. The precedent is there. I would be shocked right now, barring the law changing some point soon, I would be shocked otherwise if Major League Baseball does not pull its all-star game and put it somewhere else this year. I know it's a logistical pain in the neck, but MLB is in a situation where they're playing through COVID. They have potential work stoppage here. They do not want the bad publicity of having people potentially drop out of this game or having players themselves boycotted because it's in Atlanta. I would not be shocked if they pull this game from the Braves and say, hey, once things settle down here, once the law is like overturned to some degree. We'll get you back in a couple of years. I don't think it's the play there. But that's a story for another day. We're going to dive into the March Madness stuff with Troy Moriello right after this. All right, we are back here talking college basketball, talking the NCAA tournament. Join me, as always, as our trip to the March Madness, the host of the Seeing Red podcast. Troy Moriel is here. Troy, how are you? I'm doing well, Mike. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. I have to say, it's opening day. Obviously, I'm a bit bummed recording on Thursday. The Met game got postponed because of contact tracing for the Nationals with their COVID issues. But we have a lot of college basketball stuff to break down today. 
Definitely, yeah. Hopefully that'll uh, distract us for the next couple of, uh, of minutes at least. Yeah, and I mean, since we came on the air today, there's a lot happening. There's a bunch of breaking news in college basketball. On the coaching front, we have planned to talk about Indiana's hire. We got to start with the two bombs here. Number one, Texas hires Chris Beer as their new head coach. Instant reaction to that. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's a pretty decent fit, you would think. Obviously, he's he's used to coaching in that area. He's used to coaching in the in the Big 12, uh, Texas Tech, a program that's, you know, been to the Final Four. So, so he's, you know, used to the big stage, I guess you could say. So it's a pretty natural fit. I feel like it's one that a lot of people kind of saw coming. So doesn't doesn't really shock anyone, I don't think. Um, but that Texas job, you know, you have all the facilities, you have all the resources. You're not going to have a hard time finding five, you know, four and five star recruits to go there. The issue is obviously just like their football program, the massive expectations that you have that comes along with those resources and those facilities. So. Shaka Smart wasn't really able to live up to those expectations in his couple of years there. We'll see if uh, Chris Beard does any better. Yeah, I mean, Shaka Smart, I mean, coming in, he was the hot guy at Texas. Like, he come off the run with VCU, the Final Four. He done a great job at that program. Just, I just don't think the fit was ever there with Shaka at Texas. I feel like the alums weren't really quick to warm to him. I think Chris Beard being a Texas, like, lifer, basically, coach at Texas Tech for a long time, he has the roots to really do well recruiting. I think that's a good fit. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, like we mentioned, you know, he, he's he's recruited in that area. He knows the conference. He knows everything that comes along with coaching in that in that state and that area for sure. So it's definitely more of a natural fit than uh, than Shaka was for sure. Yeah, Shaka goes off to Marquette, which I think that's a much better fit for him than than Texas was. I mean, Shaka goes to a basketball only school in Marquette, Big East. I feel like he's got a better job recruiting there. I think that's a home run hire for the Golden Eagles. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. It feels like they kind of subbed out one coach in, in Wojo, who who is an incredible recruiter, but maybe doesn't always have the on the court results. And they brought in Shaka Smart, who you can kind of say the same thing about him, right? Has a, a great recruiter, but hasn't hasn't really translated to the on the court stuff in, in Texas, per se. Um, but certainly a big addition to the Big East as a St. John's fan. Uh, looking forward to taking on Shaka. You know, he plays that kind of up-tempo um, you know, high pace style that St. John's likes to play. So those will be some fun matchups for sure. Um, looking forward to another big name hire in the Big East. You know, they, they've got some pretty big name coaches now, you know, Ewing, Jay Wright, obviously Shaka Smart now. So definitely going to be interesting to see uh, how he fits in the Big East. But as we as we mentioned, certainly more of a natural fit for him at Marquette than it was at, uh, at Texas. So interesting to see how, how the next couple of years go with him there. Yeah, absolutely. That's not issue number. That's number one. The big bomb came in before Texas hired Chris Beard. Roy Williams announced he's retiring. It's not April Fool's Day joke. So he's seventy years old. I guess he's had a great career there. Won three championships. I don't think he was thrilled the way the game was going. Now with all the recruiting, we got thousands of like at least a thousand players going to the transfer portal this year. More likely than not, and I think this just opened the biggest job on the board because I mean North Carolina is going to have a huge opportunity here for somebody. Definitely. In terms of, of Roy, I think that you hit the nail on the head there. It, it's the way that the game is, is going, you know, and for a 70 year old coach who's been coaching for 30 plus years, you know, I just don't know if it's worth it maybe for him to put in the effort that you're going to have to put in year in and year out now to continue building your program or to continue, you know, uh, replacing players from year to year for him. I'm not sure if he, he wanted to, to go through with that. Um, you know, you look at the college basketball landscape and what it is now, 
it's entirely different than it was 10 years ago when we were kind of more one and done's or just kind of at the start of the one and done era. It's incredibly different than it was five years ago, even, you know, two, three years ago, it's a totally different landscape now with the, with the transfer portal and players having more freedom to go wherever they want. I just don't know if Roy at his age wanted to deal with that. Um, I think that he, you know, embraced obviously the one and done era. He won a title in that era. So can't, uh, can't say that he didn't do a good job, you know, managing that, but I'm sure, this is an entirely different animal. Obviously this is, you know, basically having to recruit, you know, not only, you know, transfers and, and incoming high schoolers and Juco kids, but having to recruit, you know, your own players to stay on your team as well. So it's a lot of recruiting for Roy and at his age, he probably did not want to do it. Um, in terms of the job, you're absolutely right. You know, it's, it's, it's the biggest job on the board now. Uh, it's a job that doesn't open all that often. You know, it's kind of like the, the Steelers job where, uh, you know, you know, it's not going to not going to have that opportunity for very, uh, very many times. So interesting job. Again, huge, huge resources, huge facilities. We'll have no problem getting recruits to come in, but big, big expectations to live up to where, you know, in North Carolina, it's it's national title or bust basically every single year. So if, if someone wants to take that on, it's going to be a nice payday, obviously, as well. So um, definitely an interesting job that's that's going to be opened up for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a lot of interesting candidates here because obviously they, their school was to tend to stay in the family when they bring in people who either coach for them, played for them, been on the staff. So remember Roy Williams was a UNC alum when he came over from Kansas. So this is one where you're looking at the alum pool. I think the big one, uh, the big one that jumps out is Wes Miller. He has done a great job at UNC Greensboro, played for Roy on the championship teams in 09. I think he's a good one, but otherwise... I think it's the opportunity for them to go big game hunting. I mean, Chris Beer's off the board. You still have Nate Oates on in the mix there. Mm-hmm. You could try call the NBA, see if Brad Stevens wants to get up the Celtic job to come down. I feel like the list of possibilities are endless here. I, and I think I, – I, maybe I'm completely wrong with this, but I think I saw that Brad Stevens did, like, grad school at UNC or something. <laughs> so there's, like, there's some connection there or something to that. Uh, you know, the, the rumors with, with Brad, uh, Brad Stevens going back to the college game, it feels like they, they started the day that he went to the Celtics job, you know, so – uh, that would definitely be a, be a higher. Personally, I, I see them going for a big name, a big name guy. You know, that's like you mentioned, that's kind of the the nature of what UNC does. Um, I, I would think that they stay in the family, as you mentioned. That's kind of something that they've they've done recently as well. So who, who knows, you know, what direction that they go? But but I think it'll be a big name guy. But but you know, who 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 you know, it's 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 you know, hours or not even an hour after the job opened up. So we'll have to see, you know, who they're talking to and everything like that. Yeah, I think in terms of the names like they have ties to the pool, I think the problem is it's not like a big, obvious name like last time Roy Williams was after they fired Matt yeah. Doherty. It's like, this is not an obvious, like, oh, like, he went he went to UNC. He's going to come back. It's like everybody who's been there is either, like, really old or, like, is not proven yet. Like, mm-hmm. Wes Miller's probably the best coaching candidate there. I mean, Hubert Davis has been on Roy's staff for years. Like, they're not going to give the job to, to Hubert Davis. I think mm-hmm. the question with them is, like, is Wes Miller good enough? Do they make a run at Porter Moser? Think that he's going to be the guy built, coming off the Loyola Chicago build? Do they go look at John Beeline who's sitting on the sideline? They try and pluck somebody else's coach. That's the other, that's mm-hmm. the option that they have. Yeah, even a guy like you know Eric Musselman at uh, at Arkansas, someone like that, maybe you know you you never really know. You know it's it's kind of interesting because there is no like limit to how big they can go. You know you know you can look at even even a school in the Final Four right now. I don't know, just throwing it out there like like Baylor or something. You know, if Scott Drew got offered the the North Carolina job, I'm sure he would jump. Like like there's like UNC is a premier level job here. It's it's a top five job in the sport. So you know, unless you're trying to poach you know you know another top five program, 
I, I, I just, I don't see a lot of coaches turning that down. So it seems like whoever they want to target, they'll at least get a conversation with and get a chance to sell. Um, you know, they, they can't really set their sights too high. I, I think that, you know, whoever they wanted to reach out to, they can at least uh, get a, get a chance to, to, to sell their program on it. And I mean, you know, there's not a whole lot of selling there, but they'll have a chance to at least, you know, have that conversation rolling with, with any coach in the country, I would think. I also think this might be blasphemy considering like his Duke roots here, but like considering his ties to the area, I wonder if Bobby Hurley would be a better fit leaving, you know, Arizona state. Cause I think he's done decently over there, but I feel like he'd be more of a geographic fit in, in North Carolina. Yeah. And he did get an extension, I think two years ago, I want to yeah. say so. So that's in there, but I mean, those don't really mean a whole lot in, in college sports anyways for coaches. So yeah, Hurley, Hurley is definitely an option as well. Um, even, you know, sounds crazy to say but maybe even someone like jay wright out of uh, out of villanova you know what if they went for him uh he's you know been in nova for the last two decades or so so there, there's a lot of, of of options that they can go in i'm literally just throwing names out there but you know you know you never really know but like i mentioned they, they can't set their sights too high you know it's a it's a premier level job it's a top level job in, in the in the country there's not a whole lot of people there's not a whole lot of coaches right now that if contacted by UNC would say, I'm not interested. I don't even want to talk about this. I think that whoever they want to have a conversation with, they will be able to at least talk to. Yeah. And one job that used to be that way is not anymore. Indiana. We learned that the hard way because when we heard that they, they got those two boosters to waste $10 million to buy out Archie Miller. And we're hearing, Oh, Porter Moser, like Scott drew Chris Beard. Basically anybody with a pulse linked to Indiana, they end up with Mike Woodson who, Obviously played there under Bobby Knight in the late seventies as a good as a good job as an NBA assistant head coach. He was with the Knicks this year. He's been NBA head coach, not been successful as an NBA head coach. As a for me, I don't get this hire because this is not Jawan Howard at forty six going to Michigan saying, "Okay, I was there with the with the Fab Five. I'm going to bring all the young players in." Mike Woodson is sixty three. He's never coached in college. He has no idea what is going on in the recruiting game here. This is a move I just don't understand. Yeah, uh, I I agree with that for the most part. When I when I saw the hire, I, I didn't realize that Woodson played at Indiana, so I was totally taken aback. I had no idea uh, what the connection was there. Then I obviously realized that he he played there in the uh, in the seventies, so that's the connection. But as you mentioned, that was you know what 40, 50 years ago now at this point. So you know that that connection, you wonder how strong it was. Uh, Mike Woodson did a phenomenal job with my Knicks, or not a phenomenal job with my Knicks, but you know, coach my Knicks to their best season in, uh, in basically two decades in the, in the NBA ranks. So at least, you know, he has the head coaching experience. Sure. But to hire a guy with, with zero collegiate, uh, head coaching experience is always a risk. You don't know how they're going to react. Um, the recruiting thing I think is a little overrated because you have a whole staff of guys, you know, so you can hire guys that are, you know, go on that staff, you know, solely to recruit. Um, you know, it's not like Woodson is going to be the only guy recruiting. So that part of it, I don't, I don't, you know, totally, think is is that big of a deal but you know for every uh Jawan Howard and Patrick Ewing as as I can know there's a there's a Chris Mullen who just doesn't work out you know as the former player going back to the school so it's a risky hire for sure it's not a not a safe one uh for Indiana and I think they probably should have gone in a, in a maybe safer direction here with kind of the direction that their program has been going in for the last couple of years um certainly a big risk that they take on. I guess you could say a big reward if it does work out like we saw with uh, Jawan Howard and, and Michigan. But to me, I probably would have gone safer. And like you mentioned, kind of targeted someone in the, uh, in the collegiate ranks, you know, an experienced guy 
as you know, opposed to a guy who's going to be making his collegiate head coaching debut at uh, one of the toughest jobs in the country. Yeah, and the reason I feel like we're spending about 12 minutes on the coach here is that there was not a ton to write home about in these games this weekend because I said last week, I, the first two rounds were fun. I was a little worried about what we were getting here in the Sweet 16, the Elite Eight, because we had lost so many power brokers. And I was right. For the most part, these ga- these 12 games we got were not very good. Yeah, um, that's kind of the the byproduct of all the upsets, like we mentioned. You know, I think I mentioned uh, when I was on last week, you know, all these upsets, they're very fun in the moment and they're awesome to watch in the moment. But then, you know, you've got, you know, Loyola Chicago versus Oregon State in a Sweet 16 game. And you've got Oral Roberts playing that night in a Sweet 16 game. It's not the most uh, attractive matchups for sure. So we did get a lot of blowouts. Uh, we saw kind of the, the best teams rising to the top and not really being challenged, uh, like Baylor and Gonzaga. And yeah, I mean, it, it was great to have the games on for sure. But yeah, not maybe not the most uh, entertaining uh, weekend of games for sure. Yeah, the Sweet 16 is a lot of ugly, either like defensive battles where teams couldn't hit a shot or complete blowouts. There were only two games in the Sweet 16 we really need to touch on here. It's number one, Oral Roberts gave Arkansas a run for its money. I got to give them credit. I thought that shot was going down from Max A. Smith when he, yep. he had a perfect look. He just bounced off the front rim. I got to give those guys a lot of credit. They were probably should not have been as low as a 15. Yeah, they, yeah, I 100% agree. I thought that shot was uh, was going in, and that would have been you know, a March Madness moment to uh, remember for years to come if they won that on a buzzer beater there. Um, in all honesty, they, they probably would have lost by, you know, 20 or 30 points to Baylor the following game. So in the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because I don't think anyone was beating Baylor in the South anyways. Um, but yeah, what an incredible story they were, you know, making that run to the Sweet 16, upsetting Ohio State, upsetting Florida, two, two bigger programs in the sport, and then taking Arkansas down to the wire. Uh, that's that's what we love March Madness for. Obviously, it's not the most attractive matchups when you've got Oral Roberts playing a, a Sweet 16 game on a Saturday night, uh, but definitely fun to watch. You know, it's it's the true nature of March Madness having a team like that make a run almost, you know, basically inches away from making a run to the Elite Eight. So really cool to see, um, fun ride, and and I'm sure that we'll be getting another one next year as well. Yeah, I think we will have a fun run next year for them. And the other big game of that round, UCLA Alabama, the probably the game of the weekend of the four of the four games uh, of the of those twelve games. And two things stick out that game. Number one, the problems we saw of Alabama in the Iona game came back to haunt them in a big way because the free throw shooting was a killer for them. They could not handle the slow pace UCLA played at. And but one thing, Mick Cronin that game got so lucky by not foul by getting bailed out for the fact he didn't foul up three in probably the most obvious up three foul situation in your life, because Alabama, I think that one's 11 of 23 from the free throw line. Alex Reese has the game tying three. Credit to the Bruins for responding and just dominating the overtime, but I still don't know what Cronin was thinking there. Yeah, I, I mean, I'll, I'll start with the overtime. Um, credit to, to UCLA, because how many times do you, do you see a team allow a buzzer beater to send the game to overtime and then come out and, and dominate the overtime. I mean, that game was never really close in overtime. Uh, UCLA took a, took a lead early and really was never challenged, uh, which was impressive for them. So I'll say that for sure, but uh, I'm always a, a foul up three guy, you know, watching as a fan. I hope that they don't because I want the drama. I want the opportunity for a, uh, for a last second shot. So I, w- I was watching this game, you know, with, with no rooting ties, you know, my bracket was already busted. So uh, didn't really care who won. So I, I wanted them to allow Alabama to get that last shot off. I was happy that they did. But uh, in terms of a rooting interest, yes, you always foul up three. People say, you know, that, that if you foul up three, that's the only way that you can really lose the game 
in regulation if the other team you know obviously makes the first free throw misses the second and then hits a three to win the, to win the game but i still think that the, the the odds of that happening are so much lower than a team hitting a three especially in this scenario where there weren't wasn't a whole lot of time left um it was kind of more of a transition they, they got the ball to the to the shooter kind of in motion there it was, it was a very clean look you know so the odds of, of a team you know, getting a rebound after a missed free throw, tapping it out and, and you know, hitting a two-point shot or hitting a three-point shot are way lower than a team hitting an open three in transition there in rhythm. Um, so, yeah, UCLA definitely got bailed out there. I, I would have fouled there. And, um, you know, it, but, but credit to them for how they responded in that overtime. That was, that was an incredible game, uh, probably the best game of the tournament, I would say. Yeah, and we talked about Kansas last year. He got punched in the mouth, never got up. Now got off the mat in that game. You see, they got just really got punched and then got got up and just said, "You know, what? we're fine. We're we're good. We'll keep playing. We're fine." Yeah, yeah. It's uh, you know, credit to them, and that's what you need to be a Final Four team. You know, you're gonna you're gonna face adversity. We saw UCLA really in their in their first game of the tournament in the first four against Michigan State, faced some adversity, came back from it. Um, you know, their next two games they kind of rolled, but in the Sweet Sixteen, excuse me, in the Elite Eight. Uh, both of those games, you know, face some adversity and, and got up right off, up, off, off the mat. Um, that's what you need to be a final four team. So, so credit to them for doing that. I did not see that coming. I did not either. And I got to the elite eight, obviously. I mean, Oregon state, Houston, not to a ton of time on that because that game was just a disaster because nobody can make a shot. Houston almost let Oregon state come back in that game somehow, but then they hang hung on to win at the end. I think Arkansas Baylor probably the most fun of the four, to be honest with you, because it was the most highly highly offensively efficient game. Mm-hmm. I think Gonzaga we saw USC like they just completely ran them off the floor. That's probably an impressive display. I think these those three I think we kind of expected how they were going to play out. Yeah, um, I'll you know give my brief thoughts on all of them. The Houston man, what an easy ride for Houston to the Final Four. The uh, <laughs> the couple of wins that they had to get. You know, all double-digit seeds. I think the first team ever to beat four straight double-digit seeds on mm-hmm. en route to the Final Four. It was uh, not a very challenging ride for them. Um, and they still know, almost they, like, lost were, twice. What'd you say? And they still uh, almost lost twice. Yeah, no, I was going to say, too, that, yeah, they still almost lost that game to Rutgers, too. And just, uh, uh, But, you know, the, the, the Oregon State game, to me, even when Oregon State tied that game up, it just it didn't feel like they were going to win that game. It felt like uh, like uh, Oregon, or Houston was in control that entire game. The Baylor game, too, same thing. You know, Arkansas, credit to them for kind of hanging around. But to me, I was never like, oh, man, Baylor's going to lose this game. Like, that just never crossed my mind. It, it was, it was like you mentioned, it was an incredibly entertaining game. It was an efficient game. But it was entertaining to a point where you, like, you never said Baylor's going to lose this game. Like, the, the final score was never in doubt, which was interesting with that one. And then uh, Gonzaga USC on Tuesday night, a lot of people, including myself, thought this is the game that Gonzaga gets tested. You know, USC with their inside presence, USC with their defense uh, can really, you know, you know, do some do some damage on Gonzaga. A lot of people, I don't think a lot of people thought USC was going to win that game, but I think a lot of people saw that being, you know, a four point game with three minutes to go. You know, a, a two point game in the final minute, maybe. Um, you know, Gonzaga being tested a little bit, completely wrong. Um, you know, I, I think if you remember in 2015, when Kentucky went into the final four undefeated, they got a big time scare from uh, Notre Dame in the elite eight. And I think a lot of people kind of saw that happening here. Totally wrong. Uh, Gonzaga just, just rolls. That game was never in doubt, you know, from basically the first 10 minutes on that game was never in doubt. Uh, they are an absolute wagon They are I don't know who's going to beat them. Uh, you know, they're what a double digit point favorites against UCLA. Yeah. They'll be big favorites if they play, you know, Baylor or uh, Houston in the, in the, in the national final. 
I just I don't know who beats Gonzaga at this point. Yeah, Gonzaga. I mean, everybody knows how good they are offensively, and they do. They play like a modern NBA team. They they just they can attack the rim. They can shoot well from the outside. They don't get credit for two things, I think, in my opinion. Number one, they pass the ball as well as anything I've ever seen because they have very good ball movement. Everybody on the floor, one through five, can connect, can make any pass pretty much. It's just incredibly hard to defend. Mm-hmm. And number two, that they, they don't get credit for how good a defensive team they are because they completely smothered Mobley early in the game. They took away the outside shots, and they made it very hard for USC to get anything going on offense. Yeah, I was I was really impressed with their defensive effort in the, in that game as well on USC. Um, and about the you know the assists, you look at the two best teams in college basketball this season, or the you know the two presumptive teams that we're going to be seeing in the national final, uh, Gonzaga and Baylor, two of the best teams in the nation at assist to turnover ratio. They, they don't they don't turn the ball over a ton, and they play very very crisp offense and move the ball beautifully. Um, that I mean I, I'm getting ahead of myself, but if, if that ends up being the national final. On, a, on Monday night, that's going to be an incredible game between two really, really strong teams who kind of have been head and shoulders above everyone else uh, this entire season. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Yeah, the uh, obviously the closest game of that bunch was the upset is US UCLA going second team ever go first four to final four. They knock Michigan out fit in like a very, very low scoring game. This is UCLA really dominated the tempo of that game. They took the air out of the basketball. This is typical Mick Cronin basketball, too, because they play rugged defense. They don't, They take the air out of the basketball. They make it hard for you to put up points on them. And this is a Michigan team that was horrible at because, again, without Isaiah Livers, like a lot of the scoring potential for that team sort of is tied up on the inside. That plays right into UCLA's hands. Yeah, uh, we kind of talked about you know UCLA not playing the most uh, entertaining style of basketball for sure. It's kind of interesting because this wasn't you know one of those signature Mick Cronin um, like Cincinnati defensive teams. You know they 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 didn't play in incredible defense, but obviously it's kind of fitting that in the Elite Eight, what gets them to the Final Four is their defense in uh, in you know one of the in holding Michigan to about forty nine points in that game. So credit to them for that. Michigan just couldn't hit a shot in this game, though. I mean, down the stretch, I think they missed their last eight field goals. They missed a couple of layups. Um, I was I was yelling at them, you know, to to stop shooting threes. You know, <laughs> in that final minute, they took the three three pointers there, down by two. Um, you know, when they when it wasn't really needed, it, it felt like to me, I would have gone to the basket there. Even the one layup that they did get off the rebound, it felt like they rushed it a little bit. So Michigan was just out of whack offensively all night long. I think. That's a game where, you know, if you play that game a bunch of times, Michigan wins it a bunch of times, but UCLA happened to kind of win out on their style in a, in that one. But, man, if you're Michigan, you got to be kicking yourself because they missed just so many open shots. They had a good look there in the final, uh, you know, couple of seconds to win the game. Um, you know, for Michigan, it's a shame because I, I thought they were going to be a Final Four team for sure. Yeah, the thing I didn't understand with those final sequences, I mean, like, you had the most dominant player on the inside, Hunter Dickens. He almost never touches the ball. That just, I was like sitting there scratching my head. I'm like, you're down two. You're not down three. Like, try and give it to him. Let him make a play. Yeah, and, and go to the basket. Like, uh, it wasn't the final possession, but it, it was, well, it was the final possession before the ball went out of bounds. I don't, I don't remember who it was who, who took the three for, uh, for Michigan, but he had like a relatively clear lane to the basket in a one-on-one situation. Um, go to the basket there. Like, yeah. you're going to get fouled. You know, you're going to have a good look there. You have a chance for a rebound. I just I don't understand the the, the, the three point obsession there at the end for them. You know I, I feel like if they could have done that again, they probably would have gone to the basket, gone to Dickinson like you mentioned, try to get fouled, try to get a rebound, try to you know get a high percentage shot there to at least maybe send the game to overtime. Yeah, that's that's certainly true. And I think losing them, I, felt, I get I do give credit to UCLA, which 
It's amazing to think how much this tournament changed by the fact that they were in that first four game. They were down 11 at the half to Michigan State. Michigan State led for 39 minutes that game. UCLA tied it in the, in the final seconds, winning overtime. Like, our whole tournament is completely different. Michigan State holds on to that game. Yeah, it's crazy to think, you know, and, and again, you know, we mentioned that just the toughness of UCLA that, yeah, their, their tournament almost ended after 40 minutes. And now here they are almost a month later playing uh, in the final four. It just it speaks to everything that March Madness is. You know, you can you can win one game, basically, and that kind of you know sets you on a hot streak to where you're winning basically for UCLA case five in a row and making this run to the, uh, to the national semifinals in the final four. So it just, it speaks to the, to the absolute absurdity to March madness. None of it makes any sense. UCLA was on a four game losing streak heading into the uh, NCAA tournament. You know, no one would in their right mind would have seen UCLA going to the final four, uh, let alone winning a couple of games. You know, I, I don't think, I don't think anyone really would have, would have had them advancing past maybe the sweet 16 at the furthest. And now here they are. Uh, in the final four, taking on Gonzaga. So it, it, it speaks to March Madness perfectly. You know, it, it totally, totally uh, exemplifies what March Madness is in this UCLA run. Yeah, I think for sure. I think before we get to the two matchups we have on Saturday night, I want to touch on the TV aspect of this year because obviously okay. this thing about the schedule change. We had the Saturday-Sunday matchups here from the Elite Eight where we had from the Sweet 16 where we had the four standalone windows. And then we had the two double headers on Monday and Tuesday night. The Rays of the Sweet 16 games were sky high compared to where they had been in the past. The ones from Monday and Tuesday night, down a little bit. They were not as good as they've been. Do you think we're going to keep this schedule going forward here? you think we're going to try and alter it a little bit? Because I think, like, I think there's a path here where you can sort of do the windows. And it's a pro- I think the problem, I think the Monday-Tuesday prime did not work out. I don't know if no. it was because the teams are not here. Because we don't have our mm-hmm. big dogs here, and we have a lot of teams that aren't as big nationally as seven of the eight programs were from west of the Mississippi, which is not as good for like the markets like your New Yorks and stuff like that. But I yeah, think there's kind of an idea here. I don't know what how they play it. Uh, so I'll, I'll tell you my you know maybe idea, and then we we can say uh, I I always was a big fan of the the Thursday double the Thursday and Friday kind of not double headers, but the two games going on at once for the Sweet Sixteen. Um, to me, though, I would maybe do something where you keep the same Sweet 16 schedule with the, you know, the 2.30 game, the 5 p.m. game, the 7.30 game, and the 10 p.m. game, and just play that on Thursday and Friday. And, you know, you're, you're obviously playing a game at 2.30 on a, on a Thursday and a Friday during the workday, but I, I kind of would almost rather have that and then do this, you know, the same schedule with the Elite Eight, the two games in prime time, but have them on Saturday and Sunday. So, to me, I, I, I didn't have as much of a problem with the Sweet 16, but you're right. The Elite Eight games – you, you can't start an elite eight game with a, uh, you know, a trip to the final four, you know, you had UCLA and Michigan, two kind of not blue blood programs, but two big programs. Uh, you can't be starting that game at, you know, 10, 15 at night or whatever it was and ending it after midnight, you're just not going to get a great uh, rating there. So I, I would definitely like to see that fixed. I would like to see the schedule shift back to the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It was weird last Thursday, not having uh, college basketball on the sweet 16. So I would like to see, if you want to keep the times the same, sure, but I would like to see them go back to the old schedule in terms of that with the uh, Elite Eight on Saturday and Sunday instead of on Monday and Tuesday. And like you mentioned, I- I'm sure that the-, the matchups had something to do with it. I mean, Oregon State and Houston is not going to get you a big rating. Um, Gonzaga, for as good as they are, probably not going to get you a huge rating. Um, and like, like I just said, UCLA and Michigan starting at 10 p.m. at night was not um, you know very conducive to East Coast viewers, so... Yeah, it's, it, I'm, I'm sure the matchups had something to do with it, but I would like to see the schedule shift back to what it was 
uh, in previous years. Yeah, I think the end around here, because also next year you have to consider the fact you're going to have ticket, more tickets being sold at some yeah. of these sites. I think the way you do I think you go to Thursday, I think you have to start like one game at five and like one at yeah. seven. I think that's probably the easiest way you're going to do it because at that point, like you have to, I know it's inconvenient to the ticket holders, but like I think you get more of your standalone window effect, but yes. you have the, you're not running to the point where you're starting your last game at say, like if you're doing this this way, you have one at five, one at seven. Your second game in that first block start at eight. You have a little bit of overlap, not as much as you usually would have. Exactly. Yeah, I think that would be totally okay. Yeah, to, to do like a five, a seven, you like know, eight thirty, an eight thirty, and a nine thirty. Yeah, that that's perfect. I mean, that's that's I think what you what would be better because then you like you said you only have that really one overlap window there. Every game is pretty much still a standalone game. Um, so yeah, that that would work for sure. Obviously, the the five p.m. game is a little early for for the ticket holders and for the viewers. But yeah, I would, I would like to see them go back and, and maybe use that, uh, that time schedule for sure. Yeah. And let's get to our two matchups for the, the uh, national championship here. I mean, Gonzaga UCLA. I mean, it feels weird that we're talking about this and UCLA is the underdog based on history <laughs> where Gonzaga is the unbeaten juggernaut. The thing that's so frustrating about this game is the fact that I know I'm going to get my soapbox here for a minute. Like Gonzaga has not been pushed the whole tournament. Michigan would have been a fantastic matchup for them. Instead, we get a UCLA team that's going to take the air out of the basketball, has trouble scoring when Johnny Juzang is not on the floor, and he's either had foul trouble or gotten hurt in a bunch of their games. I think the big problem here is to me is like, I think Gonzaga's going to win, but this game's going to be a boring game because UCLA's going to take the air out of the basketball. It's going to be a game where Gonzaga has to win by like 70 to 62 or something like that. Exactly. It's not going to be like as entertaining as Gonzaga can be because they have to adjust because UCLA's going to slow them down. Exactly. I, yeah, I just, I, I, I think UCLA will, will do a good job playing their game, but I just, like you mentioned, they're not going to be able to score with Gonzaga. You know, they just don't have the scoring options, you know, unless Juzang goes for 40 points. I just don't see how UCLA is going to crack, you know, 65, 70 points. Like you mentioned, I, I just, I, I see this, you know, being a, you know, 80 to like 60 something Gonzaga win or like a, like a 70 to 50 type win for Gonzaga, which is not, you know, uh, as entertaining as it, as it should be. For sure, just because of the style of play that uh, that UCLA plays, I don't think that anyone's going to be able to uh, compete with Gonzaga. Maybe Baylor will give them a game, but as of right now, man, I mean, twenty-seven straight wins by double digits for Gonzaga. No one is has even challenged them yet. I don't see UCLA being the first team to do that. Um, you know, they've, they've been a Cinderella, obviously, all tournament, but I just I don't see how uh, UCLA stays within even single digits of, uh, of Gonzaga in this one. I see it being kind of a not entertaining game, but hopefully I'm wrong. Hopefully I'm wrong too. Hopefully they give them a good fight. But I think, yeah. I think they're going to get, I don't think it's going to end up being, I think they'll probably be close about a half and then Gonzaga will pull away. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you could see it being kind of a low scoring scrappy type first half, you know, where, you know, maybe Gonzaga doesn't shoot great. You know, you get like a, like a 29, 23 type uh, first half where UCLA is still in the game, but there's going to be a period at some point in this game where Gonzaga goes on a run and UCLA just doesn't have an answer for it. Uh, whether it be, you know, Juzang on the bench and foul trouble or something like that. Um, you know, I just, I, I can't see UCLA hanging around for the full 40 minutes. I just can't. Yeah. I think the, the better game is going to be the, the show that the Texas showdown here between Baylor and Houston. And the thing I think is going to turn this game is Houston. I think defensively will be able to give Baylor problems here because they play lockdown defense. The question here is if Baylor brings their defensive intensity to this game and they've seen it at times, I mean, they had it before they had the COVID pause and they came back, they struggled a little bit. Now they're getting more locked down at the defensive end. If they are playing good defense, I Houston not put the ball in the basket enough to beat Gonzaga, beat Baylor. 
So I think mm-hmm. I think Baylor's gonna pull this out. Yeah, it's 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 a little bit of the same story. Obviously, these teams are a lot more closely matched. But yeah, I just I don't know how Houston has the the scoring, the offense to really hang around with that you know inc- incredible scoring offense and efficient offense that uh, that Baylor has. I, I think Gonzaga and Baylor have been the two best teams really all season long. You know, save for a couple of weeks there where Baylor was coming back from their COVID pause, um, they've definitely been the most you know two most impressive teams in this tournament. I think that this game will be close. I don't see it being, you know, down to the wire. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, Houston against a team that's actually better than them. Like we mentioned, their their run to the Final Four has not uh, been all that impressive in terms of who they've had to beat. It's more just kind of who you match up with. Obviously, it's not their fault. But uh, it'll be interesting to see to see them in a in a game with a team that's uh, evenly matched or or most would say better than them for sure. Uh, I see this one again being probably close at the half, being close in the second half, but. At some point, Baylor's going to make a run to kind of put this game away. I see Baylor. I don't know what the line is in this one, but I see Baylor by, you know, uh, like maybe eight, nine points, you know, uh, close game, but not incredibly close. Maybe similar to the Arkansas game where, you know, it, it's it's not, you know, fully out of reach yet, but you just never really feel like Houston is uh, is going to pull it out. That's that's my, my thought. And then that sets us up for the Baylor-Gonzaga uh, national title game that I think we all kind of expected maybe at the start of this tournament. Yeah, I think the line would open was Baylor minus five, which I think was, I don't know if how much has moved since then, but I could see that being a good line. Yeah. Before we get to the title game here, I want to say with Houston, I think I have a funny comparison for them because in terms of their road, you mentioned how they did not have to face a double digits, a single digit seed through, yeah. through their entire run. I don't know if you were a kid during like the early 2000s on Nick when they had that show, Ned's Declassified School Survival Guy. Yeah. It reminds me of an episode where, Ned's not the bright, not the brightest kid here. He's in a spelling bee, and he keeps getting by because he's getting these easy words, where it's like cat <laughs> or like hat or something like that. And then he's like, "I'm gonna win this thing." He gets to the final, he gets to like the third place game. And he gets like this absurdly hard word. He's like, "I'm out." I just yeah. wonder if that's what happen to Houston here. <laughs> that's perfect. Yeah, that's perfect. I, I I could absolutely see that happening. Yeah, um, yeah. Houston's been getting by on the easy words for the for the first four rounds, but uh. They're certainly going to get tests here. They're going to get one of those like I before E or E before I words that they can't uh, they can't figure out, and uh, I, I see their run coming to an end. Yeah, and also we as an audience here, as college basketball fans, after all we've been through this year, with we lost a game in the tournament due to the due to VCU gets testing positive and having issues of contact tracing. We had all these hot and starts. We need Gonzaga and Baylor in the final. We need that game. We were supposed to have it during the regular season. It got postponed because got canceled because Gonzaga had issues with COVID here. These teams have been the clear 1A and 1B the entire season. If Gonzaga gets to the finals not to play Baylor, it feels it's going to be such a letdown. Yeah, and like, I mean, I, I don't know like what what the story is going to be on this Gonzaga team. If they, if they do end up an undefeated um, national champion, like where they're going to sit, in terms of like the greatest college basketball teams ever. But for me, like you mentioned, if they beat, you know, UCLA in the, in the final four and then Houston in the, in the, in the national championship game, and that's their path to the finals where they, you know, weren't really ever seriously challenged. Um, that's kind of like a dent on their resume. And I, I don't think Gonzaga fans will really care. I mean, they're, they're still the undefeated national champions. No one could take that away from them, but you know, to, to, to make them be kind of one of these like greatest teams of all time. I think they got to go through Baylor. I, I want to see them go through Baylor. That's a matchup that I think, you know, is, is one that would at least be a close game or, you know, if Gonzaga blows them out, then we could start saying, you know, this is one of the best teams that we've ever seen, but 
Um, yeah, it, w- it would be a shame if we got, you know, I, I, assuming Gonzaga wins, if we got Gonzaga and, uh, and Houston in the, in the, in the national championship game, instead of Baylor, like you mentioned, that game was postponed, what, six or five months ago. Um, really would be cool to, uh, to see it in the, uh, in the national championship game, kind of, kind of as a nice uh, reward for, for missing out on it the first time. I will also say CBS would be terrified of Gonzaga Houston for the Rays because a lot of the casuals will not be watching that. No, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know if it's going to be a, do a huge rating regardless, just because I don't know how big of a draw Gonzaga is, but having that aspect of the undefeated uh, national champion maybe helps a little bit. You know, they kind of went into this tournament knowing that you weren't going to have any of the blue bloods in the final four. It was going to be, you know, a Gonzaga, a Baylor, a Houston, you know, other teams that we thought Illinois, um, you know, not the, not the blue bloods that we're used to seeing. So the, the ratings were probably going to be down regardless, but maybe they'll be helped a little bit with the uh, undefeated national champion Gonzaga going for the unbeaten season. But either way, I'm not sure they're going to do an incredible rating for that uh, national title game. Yeah, it will be fun to see what happens there. Troy, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Just to give everybody a schedule update, I will give it, I will be a solo for the break between the Final Four and the National Championship. I'll give you a preview on that on our next podcast on Monday when we do the Masters preview with our golf guy, Danny Martinez. Troy, I'll be back next week. We'll recap National Championship game, set up some stuff for the offseason here, give you some teams to watch for next year. And we'll also talk about, you, you know, some fun stuff. Maybe North Carolina has a good coach by then. Maybe they move fast. Yeah, let, let, let's hope. So we have some more to talk about for sure. Yeah, also, people want to follow you on social media, Troy. Here with your Seeing Red podcast, how can I do that? Yeah, you can uh, You can check me out on Twitter at Troy Moriello. Uh, M-A-U-R-I-E-L-L-O is the last name. I do the Seeing Red podcast. If you're a St. John's basketball fan, you can definitely check that out. And, um, you know, we do a new podcast every single week because with the way that college basketball is, there really is no offseason anymore. So there's news coming out, and uh, I'll be doing a show pretty much every week to recap whatever's going on with St. John's. So definitely check that out. Yeah, St. John's are getting hit hard by the transfer portal. They have a lot of guys in there. Yeah, it's uh, seven guys in the portal right now. Just lost uh, two rotation players, Greg Williams, Marcellus Erlington yesterday. So, um, you know, but everyone's getting hit hard, so you can't really complain. It's not a, it's not a St. John's issue or anything like that. Now you got to upgrade those guys, though. There's, you know, what, 1,700 guys in the portal right now. Got to gotta find some upgrades for the guys who have left. Yeah, there's opportunity to be had in the portal for sure. I also want to thank you for coming out again. I really appreciate it. Uh, absolutely, Mike. Thanks again for having me. Um, you know, you know, I love doing this every week and uh, be back next week to wrap it all up. Yeah, indeed. Before I let you go, I let, you know, next on the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Alan Austin. We're going to talk about the HBO documentary, A Day Sports Stood Still. And I still remember our conversation from last year. When you, when you left the Big East tournament, how, how much of a circus that was and how crazy it ended up being. And now we're not all the way there yet, but I think this is an interesting watch. Yeah, at least we have stuff to talk about. You know, we're not, we're not going to the games just yet unless you're uh, going to one of the baseball games. We're not going to these games, but um, definitely fun to at least have, have stuff to talk about instead of uh, sitting down watching, you know, sports from 20 years ago. So that's fun. It is fun, Troy. Thanks, guy. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, Mike. March 11, we go out for warm-ups, and then pew! The suits come right on the floor like it's the FBI. Oh, this might have something to do with COVID. We had a positive case. We had no choice. We needed to take a pause in the season. Every major sports league is calling a timeout. It was the day the sports stood still. I miss the fans. I miss that energy. I've always knew I loved the hoop, but I needed it. 
were trying to figure out what a restart could look like. The bubble could be a disaster, or we could be creating a, a Petri dish. Everything was put together. And then George Floyd changed the conversation immediately. It wasn't a question of how are we going to play. It was a question of do we want to play. It's best to support the players and just not be here tonight. that our voices are heard. The athletes understand their power. They have to be true to who they are. COVID ended up just being the starting point, but it's definitely not the ending point. All right, we are back here on the podcast. You just heard the trailer for HBO sports documentary, The Day Sports Stood Still. Joining me today to talk about this interesting choice of documentary is the guy who has talked about some pop culture stuff with some fancy baseball coverage last week, Fallon Austin. Alan's back. How are you? I'm good, Mike. Thanks for having me. How are you? Doing pretty good. I have to say, this was certainly an interesting documentary at HBO. Absolutely. I really thought it was important. I thought it was well put together. I think with, you know, using all the technology we have now in today's culture, they were able to make a film that both represented the story it was telling and the means in which people are getting stuff done now. The Zoom interviews, and just, you know, any means necessary to tell a story with what's going on in the world. Yeah, they get a ton of credit for me from that because I watched the 30 for 30, which was filmed during the pandemic or around the Super Bowl with Al Davis, the NFL. They used no original interviews. They only went with archival and they did these really weird deep fakes where they had actors pretending to be like Al Davis and Pete Rozelle and just CGI their faces onto the actual actors, which was really creepy. This was much better done. Oh man. Yeah. And you know what? I know it's not, it's kind of, I think what you're saying, what they've done sometimes. I know the Irishman did it. I know the Marvel movies have done it where they kind of CGI actors to look younger and it always looks odd to me. Always. It never looks clean or crisp. Yeah, and this that one, they just they were basically the only original voices talking in this. So that looked very strange. This one was obviously I'd rather have interviews over Zoom than that. Absolutely. Because you know what? I think for the most part, an educated viewer understands. You know what I mean? Like and especially for a story like this, which is showcasing the pandemic in a way, you gotta be able to like understand that it's not going to be as artistic, but the information's still getting across. Yeah. It feels like a product of the times makes more sense. And speaking of the times, I mean, it's hard to believe we're over a year from the day that sports did stand still on March 11th, 2020. Like what do you remember about that day specifically? What I remember is that there was this kind of cloud creeping over sports prior to there. They, in this film, they kind of go into it, but I remember it being a little bit more of a fear than this film lets on in, fact, in, in terms of, is stuff going to end? And I remember watching a wrestling event for All Elite Wrestling. It was in Utah, like a couple days prior, and I remember just having this feeling of, what's going to happen if more people get sick? And then what I remember specifically about the beginning of this whole thing 
was obviously the Jazz Thunder, but it was also Rudy Gobert touching all the microphones and being very loosey-goosey afterwards. So the day itself, I remember thinking, oh my goodness. And then I remember the Gobert touching all the microphones. And I just remember being like, I think everyone's taking this a little too lightly. So that was my general feel during that day. But I definitely remember the, the sports world freaking out over the cancellations and that being the real wake-up call for people. But I do think that the wake-up call started a little bit earlier, and I think you could attest to that as well. Yeah, I mean, from personal experience, I mean, I remember that time that all the Leo to and we had stuff like the MLB deciding to ban clubhouse access and I remember there was an op-ed Ken Rosenthal, I think, wrote in The Athletic about how it's important for the writers to have their access to the clubhouse. We had John Heyman making jokes about how the Pirates are the most COVID-repaired organization in baseball. And then all that stuff sort of like a light deal of it. I remember I was in Atlantic City, like, covering the MAC tournament down there. And we were down there. They announced early in the day there was going to be no fans the rest of the tournament because that was the whole thing. It was like, oh, we're going to play the sports without any fans. And then I'm sitting there in the arena when... We had the news about Tom Hanks breaking, we getting the COVID, and then we have Rudy Gobert getting, and then the, the bomb from Woes, the NBA is spending the season, and everybody started sitting there like, what's going to happen now? It's like, that's sort of like the bomb is everything else off. And, you know, being that you and I have spent a lot of time at Iona College, there was a time prior to March 11th where a fellow student and I were covering a basketball game for, for the department, and we were kind of freaking out because there was a case in New Rochelle at the time. And this is when it first started trickling on into U.S. soil and putting a little fear into especially people in New Rochelle. And we were like, this is getting scary. And we were there covering a game as if nothing was happening. So the thoughts may have been there for me earlier because of something like that. Yeah, that's also certainly a fair point. I mean, I also going to point people back to the first podcast I did after the sports world shut down last year. I spoke with Troy Morial, who I've been doing the March Madness coverage with this year. I mean, he was at the Garden last year when the Big East tournament shut down. He's just, the way he described that scene was just so surreal. Absolutely. And this film itself does a pretty good job at capturing just the sudden stop of it all. Yeah, that they do. And I think let's get deeper into this film because, I mean... I think they do a good job right off the bat giving you this opening montage where they give you all these moments of the crowd getting hyped at big sporting events and then just the complete drop to all the sound gone, the shots of the empty stands. But that did a good job setting the mood to get you into it, what you're getting into here. It felt like an apocalypse movie. It felt like a scene from I Am Legend or something like that where it's just nothing. And it was very effective. It was tremendously effective. And I do think... Obviously, we had to start with the Jazz Thunder thing, and this thing is centered around basically Chris Paul. is an EP on the project. He was obviously there in the arena when all the craziness started. I thought it was cool to see his recollection of the thing combined with the use of their archival footage, including, I think, un previously unreleased footage from inside the arena where he's talking about how, what players are like talking, shouting at each other, and you see them lip-syncing it to Chris Paul actually saying it in real time. That was a very, very creepy thing. It was creepy, and I do like the Chris Paul aspect because clearly he's a big deal within the league, you know? Yes, he was a superstar at one time. He's no longer a superstar on the court, but off the court and in the public eye, he is still a superstar. So to have his name and his presence and his voice there as kind of like the narrator almost, but not quite, I think it was very effective, and he clearly knows how to be in front of a camera. He knows how to tell a story, and it read very well. 
yeah, I mean, that whole scene was just bonkers. I remember they're talking about, like, how, like, they didn't know who was doing what. They, they talk about how, like, guys in the lock in the jazz locker were sort of joking around, like, oh, like, I hope I don't have it, like, sort of, like, half joking, like, half afraid, like, that kind of inside stuff we haven't really heard before. Absolutely, and having Donovan Mitchell there was big because – I remember after Gobert, Mitchell was the next big name to be revealed, and the Jazz were getting hit hard, and it was becoming all the more nobody's invincible feel. So to have Mitchell there talking about his experience in his in his living room, just camped out for a couple weeks playing video games. I mean, I know it doesn't sound like, you know, he wasn't, it didn't seem like he was affected by the virus in any everlasting way, but his experience was a real eye opener at the time. And I'm glad we got to see and hear his side of the story as well. Yeah. His was good. We got to see some of the other athletes and other sports that were affected, like the Olympic, like the Olympic fencer who was trying to train, had the rug pulled out from under him. Also, it was interesting with Chris Paul, see like his move from going back from Oklahoma city back to his home in Los Angeles and, seeing that he's he's all, all I'm getting the test results on Monday on Sunday Monday comes he's not there Tuesday comes he's home but he's staying in his car because he still hasn't got his results yet and he has, his kids know he's home like that made it even more real and that put you you know it shows you how far we've come in a year because right now if that same thing happened with all the info we have he would let his family know he would go in his house and just stay in a separate room his wife would probably help try to take care of him there would be like better you know, an understanding, but this was back then when who, we didn't know anything about it. We were so confused. It seemed so deadly, which it is, but there was just so much more uncertainty that there is now. So it makes sense that he waited in his car for a couple of days. It was that kind of panic and mystery around COVID at the time. Yeah. It was even more like, like even like crazier like when he finally gets his test result. And you see his son rub his son just dead stopped because he doesn't know if his dad has the virus or not. So that was also something that was like very jarring. Very jarring, very effective, and very honest. You know, that's how we all have been. Well, most of us, you know, have been during this pandemic, very tentative, very unsure, and quite honestly, pretty scared. Yeah, I think the doc did a very good job on this. I think a documentary also did a very good job covering the role that Black Lives Matter sort of developed at, as the George Floyd murder happened and all these other events happened around the country to bring about the conversation on racial unrest. And I think it's a good job having these conversations, showing what the athletes were doing here. And it's something I think people always forget that, like, I think without sports and without the, all the distractions, like, these conversations would not have been as big as they became. Absolutely. And they mentioned it several times throughout the film that all the social justice threw a curveball into their planning of the story. And it was something they had to address and they had to put it in there. And it's, you're right. This summer of 2020, when there was no sports, was a real time for social reflection and what was going on in the world, all the injustice. And it needs to be called out. It needs to continually be called out. And conversations like that, you are 100% correct may not have happened or been addressed yet had the the sports world not stood still. Not even just sports. Like, there was no movies. There was no TV. There was no... Very like, true. Anything. Yeah. There's no entertainment complex going on. And without all those distractions, now people just can't really ignore what was happening in Minnesota. Right. You're absolutely right. Because if all the sports went on strike, people would fill their time with other activities. There, were no, there was nothing to do. 
it really was nothing to do. And I did think, in my opinion, the best aspect of this move of this documentary was the focus on the NBA specific stuff, which I get because Chris Paul's in the NBA. There are a lot of NBA guys he was connected to. I think that was by far the most effective stuff in the, in the film. Absolutely. And you know what? This country has a long way to go, but it's better we're having these discussions than not. I think, you know, peppering in other sports athletes in COVID and social justice is important. I think we could have fleshed it out a little bit more and, and rounded out some of the stories a little bit better. But I think that when you're given all this material and you have an hour 40 or an hour 30, whatever around whatever this film was, you have a lot to pack in. You really don't want to leave anything on the cutting room floor, but you also want to leave time to explore and flesh out more stories. Like they touch on Mookie Betts and baseball, but they don't really dig deep on it. They, they go to the fencing guy. I can't remember his name at the moment, but they touch on different sports and gymnastics, but they don't really do a deep dive. They just kind of do surface level. And, you know, I'm actually intrigued. I want to hear more. I want to see how their stories round out. I, I think it's, scratch the surface this may have been able to be a two-parter i think it could have been i mean they they, they get two parts on tiger woods it's probably not do two parts on this and you know what a two-parter here you could do an hour and a half to two hours on covid specific and then an hour and a half to two hours on social justice or social injustices specific and really get a complete four-hour project that you know, really, really breaks down and gets into the sports world as a whole. Yes, you're going to be able to cover, you know, Chris Paul and the NBA a good amount, but you're also going to dig deeper on the other sports which they touched on. And you might be able to delay the release a little bit so that COVID's on its way out even more and we can have even more of a reflective look on some of these things rather than we're still kind of not out of the woods yet, we're still in the thick of it looking back on it. So I, I think if I were to make two changes, it would be flush it out into a two-parter and maybe release it later on. I think that second point's dead on. I think, honestly, like, it's sort of the same thing we had with the Craig Carton documentary where we saw Craig's, like, rise, saw his downfall. Then we didn't get the part of the documentary where Craig is back at WFAN with Evan Roberts. We don't see any of that. We just end it with the little title card saying, Craig has negotiated a radio return. I think if, right. I think if we, you know, have this, you know, set released in March of 2022, maybe drop it on 3-11-22 because by then you figure everything is pretty much back to normal. Then you have, I think, a more complete picture as opposed to here, it feels like we're stopping about three quarters of the way through the, the actual story. Yeah, whatever the new normal is. But of course, yeah, we're it's the same thing as Carton. You're right. Like, how much more effective would the Carton thing be now that he's gotten in a groove with Evan Roberts? His ratings are through the roof. That's the redemption, not just negotiating a new deal. I get the fact, you know, Content was sparse. It was it was like non-existent. People wanted stuff to be released during the pandemic, but I think it sacrifices the overall message of the piece if we're just releasing, you know, as soon as possible rather than waiting for the story to unfold completely. Yeah, because I feel like the story kind of like they kind of clip it in late August, basically after Chris Paul leaves the bubble, sort of where we end this, is where you get little Tyler cards saying, oh, the NFL had this many players test positive. The NBA's had this many test positive, and they're not in the bubble this year. I think sort of continue, like maybe even like a sequel set up, say, okay, like in March of 2022, here's where we continue. I think that would have been more effective than what we got. And maybe we'll get that. Maybe we'll get a sports to still part two at a later date. 
I just think, you know, I would have waited as we discussed. And I just want to point out that the film we have, I really enjoyed it. It was a fast watch. I was intrigued the whole time. You know, Antoine Fuqua was a phenomenal director, made his mark with Training Day back in the day. High quality individuals putting together this piece, and it really sh- it really shows. So I think our, you know, critiques are more because we were into it as opposed to we discredited and didn't like it. We wanted to see more. We wanted to see, I guess, I just wanted to see it flushed out a little bit more because I really liked what we got. Yeah, I think... I also think there was there's a story here if you just focused on the NBA stuff because I mean I get that you have to mention that Mars Madness is canceled and that everything else got pushed back but I think the NBA has sort of been the one that's been the front and center in terms of everything coming back because they're the ones that had the bubble that got raised attention they're the ones that had the biggest role in the social justice movement I mean we had this is one thing I was a little disappointed we did not get more on the story behind the the protest in the bubble where Milwaukee boycotted the game, and then we had the talks about maybe the season would shut down. I thought it would have been interesting. I don't know how many people would have been willing to talk about this meeting with the fact that they had a meeting in the bubble that was not really addressed in the film where we had discussions that maybe everybody's going to pack up and go home and just leave the season behind. I thought it was interesting to get a little bit more on that. Yeah, and I think, again, a two-parter where you can do two hours on the social justice and, and you know, that, that side of the story you get to be able to do that. They do touch on it here, but you're right. I want to see more of that because that is so powerful. That is real change in the making. That is real discussion from human beings trying to make a better world for, for everybody. And it could have easily been, you know, elongated in this story. I think it could have. I do think, though, I'm going to give it a solid B+. I think the only thing that holds it back is that I think it could have been, like, so much better than it was, but it's still a very good watch. Yeah, a B plus is a solid grade. It's a it's a fair one. I think what would have put it in the A in the A range would have been a little more time and a little bit more what happened after as part of the story and not just footnotes at the end. Yeah, because I think like there was stuff going on throughout the NFL season that was interesting. I mean, you had stuff further stuff in the NBA. I think. There is more there, and hopefully maybe Chris Paul and Antoine Fuqua revisit this and say, you know, maybe in, like, a year we, t- we talk more on this and get more, like, in-person interviews like as conditions become more normal. I think that would be a fun follow-up. For sure. And, and you know, I do want to say another really effective piece here was the Carl Anthony Town stuff. That was completely sobering. That was a reminder that this is very serious, and even though, you know, there seems to be a light at the end of the tunnel. A lot of people have died. A lot of people have been affected and it's just been a miserable experience for all. And we shouldn't ever take what we have for granted. And I thought that was a really nice touch. And for him to sit there on that Instagram video, I believe it was an Instagram video. and just kind of like address the public, real emotional stuff, really effective. And this film, I, I would say it is a must watch just for the messages, you know, it has to tell you. I, I think it's very informative and I think it's very important. Yeah, I think also one thing I think that might hurt this a bit is also I think some people may be, as you see in the country, people trying to get back into their lives. People are still going through COVID fatigue right now. I wonder how people are going to say it and say, like, do I want to go back to what it was a year ago yet? I think maybe people are a little further out and they may more, be more interested in a project like this. 
I could see that, but I would tell them that it's too important to miss. That would be my answer to that. There's too much to, to, to look back and remember that this happened in 2020. It's still happening today. It will happen forever in the social, like for social justice, that fight will never end in one way, shape or form. It will never end. So to get more information, to learn more stories like this, it's vital to the human experience. So I would say, yes, I understand you may be a little fatigued from all COVID related content, but that's the new reality and we need to learn from it. We need to go forward with more information, more acceptance and more compassion. I would agree with that as well, because it's not, let's say, like NCIS saying, oh, we're got the characters wear masks sometimes because our setting takes place in COVID. It's not like that, where I just kind of feel like sometimes these shows are like shoehorning into their stories to sort of feel real with the times. This actually is a reflection of reality. Right. Yeah. This is not ripped from the headlines, the Law and Order style. This is real life. You know, obviously, Law and Order implies that that's a real life story, but it's not fiction this is non-fiction this is real life like you said this is an important film i think it is too now before i let you go like what else have you been streaming of late because i feel like there's some stuff that's been popping out people and keeping an eye on you know what mike i gotta be honest with you some of what i've been streaming lately has been older stuff uh, my fiance and i you know we finished a rewatch of the sopranos so like and she likes it but I was like, you know what? Let's watch a show you love as well. And we sat and streamed the entire run of Sex in the City, which I know is probably the biggest curveball I could have thrown at you right now. But since that show itself is on its way back, it was interesting to go back and see what that show was for the time and how it still holds up today. So that, in all honesty, the last show I streamed was Sex in the City, but I don't want to leave without reminding you, and I've reminded you off the air many times, please watch Brockmire. Yeah. yeah, that one's on my list. I Actually, the most recent thing I, I streamed was I actually checked out the Snyder Cut last week. Now, I'm... So, believe it or not, the Snyder Cut release and the trailer for the new Suicide Squad have kind of pushed me to going back and revisiting all the Marvel stuff I've missed. So another thing I have streamed recently is the first Ant-Man. So I watched recently the first Ant-Man and I loved it. I thought it was a lot of fun and a great little film. And it was a very good contrast to some of the other films in the Marvel universe. Yeah, I remember the Ant-Man was fun. I will say that. I'm also going to be doing the Snyder Cut on the podcast next week. My buddy Nick Frietta is checking it out because Nick actually has a unique perspective because I'm like I was most of the traditional where I watched the Justice League, the one that, Zack Snyder started and they had to step away from Joss Whedon finished in theaters. I watched that and I watched the Snyder Cut last week. Nick actually watched the Snyder Cut first. He's going back to watch Justice League. So he's going to give me that perspective, what the, the seeing the original intended vision compared to what it actually became. That's going to be a fun conversation. Wow. I, and let me ask you, without spoiling what you're going to talk about, is there a big difference between the two? And a follow-up is, after they, released, they announced they were going to release the Snyder Cut, how much had to be refilmed the reshot and what did Zack Snyder do after the fact oh there's a very big difference I mean, obviously the fact it's double the length because this, the Justice League was two hours Snyder Cut is four but like the story in Snyder Cut is much more complete than what we got in in the Justice League film version I think also the problem they had here is that there's a total mismatch between what Zack Snyder wanted to do when Joss Whedon ended up doing granted part of it came from mandates from DC themselves saying hey 
keep it to two hours in the theater and, you know, try and lighten the tone up a little bit. But I think the Snyder Cut, we'll get into this next week more, but there are things that Snyder did well. There are also things that you could see why there were issues with what DC was trying to do here. Interesting. And did he have to go back and, and film new content after yeah, it was announced? He did. He had some, he, I remember I saw that Henry Cavill, uh, Ezra Miller, Ray Fisher, a couple other actors went back and filmed new stuff at the end of last year. So it fell in the gaps of that story. Did the Jared Leto scene get filmed after the fact? I believe that was filmed after the fact. Interesting. There's so many, I've had a lot of trouble, Mike, and maybe you could point me to the right direction online of exactly what belongs in the MCU and what belongs in the DC version of the, you know, the DCU. I don't know what it's called, but like, if I'm going to invest the time, I want to know every piece of content that is part of these universes and the order that they should be watched because otherwise it's just, I feel lost. Yeah, Marvel is easier because Marvel is pretty clear. It's like, okay, the movies are here. Now it's the Disney Plus shows, the important things. Like, there's ancillary stuff like the Netflix material. Like, they said was in there, but I don't know if they still count it right now. So I wouldn't steer you clear of that. But the movies on Marvel is clear. DC, it's basically, it's a little messy right now because they're trying to decide what direction they want to take it in. But, like, the official films, I can point you to, like, which ones those are. Okay, and... With the MCU series, you mentioned the Netflix ones. I've actually been told, I don't know if this is true or if this was that person's opinion, that the one series that truly belongs in the MCU is Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. does, like, they actually did tie it in well in the first two movies and of course sort of phased themselves out of it because there was a divide between, like, the old Marvel TV brand and the Marvel Films brand because there was sort of, like... This is not developed by Kevin Feige, and he sort of like did not want to give the film, the TV show access to stuff. They tell good stories, which are kind of I want to say like they're canon until they're not. Where like they have like as, you can ignore it, and it still could be in the canon. But until they specifically like rewrite something or bring somebody in with a new backstory, it's not officially canon yet. So to play it safe, none of the Netflix shows are Agents of Shield. I should. Reference as part of the MCU in my overall umbrella of understanding. That would be correct because I mean the only like I'm gonna keep an eye out on the Netflix one because I know there's rumors that Daredevil is gonna pop up in Spider-Man Three to Spider-Man No Way Home. If he does pop, and up, this would be the Daredevil from the Netflix series. Yeah, if there's, there's rumors that D Daredevil played by Charlie Cox would show up. So that would change things. That would change it because that, that would be them actually acknowledging that those series existed because at, at the moment they have not. Okay, okay, and I think at that point, if Daredevil exists, the all all the others exist. You know, I think I think that would be safe to say. Although I've heard that Iron Fist is terrible. Iron Fist is garbage. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. So I, I I think I've got a better understanding than coming into this conversation now. Yeah, because like that and any of the shows on Disney Plus right now are considered basically on par with the movies. So like WandaVision, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, those are on par with movies in terms of where they fit in the Marvel universe. Right, and they're going to be, are they all going to be one season, like, series? Are they all going to be limited series, or are any of them going to extend? There's supposed to be a couple that are going more than one. I think Loki's supposed to be a sec- get a second season, and other animated What If is supposed to get a second season. I don't know about any of the other ones yet, but I would not be surprised if some of them have more than one season. And my last question, sorry, I've got two more. Yeah. Does M- MCU Phase 4, does that 
take into consideration everything that came before, or are they kind of starting a new story? They th- This picks up basically after the events of Endgame. And it starts with Far From Home? Far From Home is the end of, official end of Phase 3. Oh, so Phase 4 has not started yet. Well, WandaVision technically is the start of Phase 4. Gotcha. And Black Widow will be a part of Phase 4. Yes. Gotcha. Okay. I'm starting to learn here, Mike. It's very complicated to a non-fan, so to speak, to get caught up, especially when it's been embedded for years. But my last question is, Margot Robbie plays Harley Quinn. Are all of her Harley Quinn performances connected in the same universe? I think so. I have not seen her second movie yet, so I can't officially confirm that. Now I have to actually watch that movie and get back to you on that one. And this is Birds of Prey? I've not seen Birds of Prey. I saw the original Suicide Squad, which is hot garbage. But Gotcha, 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 gotcha. All right, Mike, I won't take up any more of your time on this. Day the sports stood still. Please go watch it and get informed and learn something. Yeah, the DC stuff is a bit messy. I will say that. And like a lot, a lot of the films are not that good, but hopefully, you know, they, they're starting to get their act together. I've heard that the best film in that whole run is none of them, but the best performance is Ben Affleck in Batman v Superman. I've always heard that that movie is kind of bad, but he's really good. I would, and the movie is too long. I think the best movie of the bunch is still the original Wonder Woman movie. Oh, interesting. Okay. I have heard good things. I've seen Wonder Woman 84. I did not like it. That one sucked. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, but we'll have a DC conversation another time. Before I let you go, how can you follow social media? Can you some of the stuff you're up to? Absolutely. So, at Alan underscore Austin underscore on Twitter, at Alan Austin Sports on Instagram, and you can listen to myself and my partner Ben's podcast, American Scene. We cover films that have American in the title and look at their cultural impact and what they say about America as a whole. That is American Scene Pod on Instagram. Check us out. Follow us. Give us a listen. Let us know what you think. Also, this podcast is coming out on opening day today. So who's your random baseball player for opening day? Ooh, random baseball player for opening day. You want him to be current or all-time? It could be It could be either. Like, who would you put up on Twitter today as the current, like, all-time, the current random baseball player? Okay, so if, if opening day was today, you know what? I'm a guest on your podcast. I'd make it a Met. I would put up Benny Agbayani. That's funny. That was the thing I was thinking of, too. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> All right, so Random Mets player for opening day. Benny Agbayani. You'll see him on Twitter on Thursday when this podcast is in years. Alan, thanks again. Thank you, Mike. All right, and that will do it for this week's show. I want to thank my guest, Troy Moriello, for hopping on to talk about all the college basketball craziness, all that stuff. It's been a lot of news. Good to catch up on some of it there. I also want to thank Alan Oz for taking the time to dive into the HBO Sports documentary The Day Sports Stood Still. If you want more good stuff like this podcast, including my look at what the Mets opening day roster will look like, and now it's still kind of relevant because opening day is pushed back within a couple of days, check out the blog over justandthesuffering.wordpress.com. You'll subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon. Simply search for Just End the Suffering, your favorite podcast platform. you find all episodes there, including our episode earlier this week, the baseball opening day special. Check that out there as well. You can also leave your feedback and star ratings. I like this podcast even better going forward. You can also follow my YouTube channel, Mike Phillips, on YouTube for the individual conversations episode, including my chats with Troy and Al will both be on the YouTube channel. 
You can also follow me on Twitter at mphillips331. That's M-P-H-I-L-I-P-S-331. And that's it for this week's episode of the podcast. Coming up next week, we're going to have some fun stuff going on. We're going to preview the Masters with our golf guy, Dan Martini. We'll talk about the Snyder Cut and more. Until then, I hope you have a better week than Michigan fans. This has been the Just End the Suffering Podcast. I'm out.